Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lens. I'm Harjot Singh. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with McCann, in which we bring together some of the most interesting people who also happen to be some of the most sought after and purposeful leaders to share insight and expertise that can help and inspire the wider business community to meaningfully deploy change. In today's episode, we will talk about the importance of mentorship, the serendipity of life experiences, and the generosity of the human spirit that helps identify and foster potential and leadership in ourselves and in others. Today, we're going to look at these topics through the lens with two amazing and inspiring guests. First, we have Angela Noon, Chief Financial Officer and Executive Director of Siemens UK. Our second guest today is One Young World Ambassador, Vincent Egunle. Vincent is an associate at Grant Thornton UK LLP, where he also co-founded Grant Thornton's first ethnicity network, which aims to reduce the ethnicity pay gap and increase representation at the top level. What you don't know is that Vincent and Angela are both qualified accountants and trailblazers when it comes to helping business and education communities unite and collaborate in new and better ways to inspire the future workforce in the UK. Right. Angela, you've had such a remarkable career trajectory and life story. Please, would you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey and how it has shaped you and your style of leadership and more importantly, your passion for education and mentorship? I come from a working class family in Glasgow and we really had nothing. There were no real role models at home for me. My family was often in trouble. This is why I'm so passionate about education, because the teachers at the school that actually sort of gave me a vision of what I could be, um, you know, inspiring teachers, people who took time with me, asked if I was okay. When things at home were really not that great, and, you know, I was getting told at home that school was not important, I left school very, very early. and. I left school without really knowing what I wanted to do because obviously nobody in my family had actually ever been in education. And as much as those teachers were trying to help me, I think that they thought I would be a neat child and they were trying their best to help me and, you know, help me at home and with my reading and everything else. But, you know, every time I went home, I was going into another world where you know, school took a back seat and I felt quite vulnerable, actually. I left school with O-levels because I was actually quite smart at school and, and quite bright. My only focus in life was to look after myself, was to, you know, get some work and get away from that situation. I was quite successful in that. So I managed to get a job in a car dealership and I, I started just working in an office and it was along that time that I first, you know, I met my first real role model. The woman was a finance director of the car dealership. Her name was Elspeth McNaughton. I was just in awe of her and how she presented herself. She was an educated lady. She was actually a, a gay woman. And at the time, I'd never actually met 
anyone who was gay before. And it was for me, it was a bit of an enigma as well that she was different, but that she was very confident in being different. I was doing that job for about six months. She took me aside into her office and said, Angela, look, it's not working out. You just don't belong here. You're too smart. You're capable of so much more. And she handed me application forms for college to go back to school. I went back to higher education and I, you know, eventually university. And all through that time, I had somebody really interested in me for the first time, interested in trying to push me, showing me what I could be with a lot of hard work. And I think if it wasn't for Elspeth McNaughton, then I probably wouldn't be doing the job I'm doing today. And I think that highlights how you open the conversation is we shouldn't underestimate the importance of our teaching community in schools. The truth is they are still role models. They are still mentors and maybe they are caring, but I wouldn't underestimate the impact they can have on somebody's life. And I think that follows also into the corporate community is, you know, somebody took time with me. Somebody was interested in my progress. They saw my potential. And what I try and do every day is to take a little bit of Elspeth McNaughton with me to look for the diamonds in the rough. Yeah. The people that you shouldn't write off because of their background, you know, circumstances, color of skin, sexuality, whatever. Yeah. And we do have a tendency to have these unconscious biases that affect or cloud our judgment in a moment in time. And and I have to say, I experienced that all through those years, even when I left university, just because of where I came from. And, you know, I lost a year of my education trying to get into accountancy where there was some snobbery about that. And today in society, I'm so much happier that we are more inclusive as a community. You talk about the importance of role modeling, which you said was very different to a mentor meeting here or there. And I know you've touched upon it, but for our listeners, um, tell us a little bit more about this. I think it's important to differentiate between meeting someone for a coffee and that has its place, but it's not actually um, inspiring necessarily. And role modeling is, is about standing up for values that you have, letting the other person see um, how their values can impact their progression. It's about supporting and, and showing somebody else what actually they could be capable of. And that's about taking time and understanding people's skills, but also their character. You know, sitting down with a coffee and telling everybody they're going to be the CFO of Siemens isn't, I think that's actually an unfair approach. I would rather sit down and understand someone and understand where they've come from. What is the belief system, the value system? Because ultimately, that is what affects your performance, you know, what you can achieve in your life. It's all related to who you are. And you need somebody that can tap into that to tell you what you can be. Yeah, to tell you you know, you're capable of so much more or have you thought about doing something completely different? 
um, someone who believes in you. That's that's the really, really important thing. So I think this coffee drinking culture of mentoring is, I, I don't think it's effective. I agree with you. It's a commitment, isn't it, to to offer that kind of inspiration and guidance and coaching. But I want to bring it back just for a quick second to business in the community. How did you first get involved with business in the community? And when you did, how did that experience contribute towards shaping your values? Did that experience also have an impact on the way you've developed your vision and your leadership style? When I became the CFO of Siemens UK three years ago, obviously I was I was introduced to BITC. And at that point, it was more doing a lot of campaigns together and, and some visits to schools. And it was during those visits to schools that I was really, you know, just, I was brought back in time and all honesty, I was brought back to that 15-year-old girl that we were talking about earlier. And I remember quite vividly, I was I was with a group and I visited a school in Croydon. And it was a school that had been more or less written off. It was bottom of the you know, performance tables. And the school had really been turned around by a new headmaster, you know, a great leader who really was interested in all the stuff we'd been talking about. And it was during that visit, there was one one young woman in particular. She was she was uh, coming from a very, very difficult background. I think her father was in a gang, actually, in Croydon, um, and her mother was in prison, and she was staying with her grandmother. She just reminded me so much of everything that I'd gone through, and I was so delighted to hear that, you know, the work that the school had been doing, she had been accepted for Cambridge. And the same thing, nobody in her family had ever, ever been in university before. And when I sat and listened to the BITC team, and then also the headmaster himself, who'd actually come from Teach First, it was so personal for me. And I came away from that meeting saying, I've got to do something now. I've got to get involved. I learned more about BITC and all the great things that they are doing. And I think trying to affect policy and obviously education skills in particular. And I had the chance to join the Education Leadership Board and I was delighted to do so, yeah. All of this, you know, brings me to your vision for Siemens in your capacity as a leader. Tell us a little bit more about how you're implementing some of these values into the way you're leading and hiring at your organisation. If we look at entry-level talent, and that's apprentices, and graduates in particular. And we're going for a more diverse slate. It's quite interesting how we didn't have a lot of females in the last round, and it was because we asked for a video to be made, and a lot of young women just didn't feel comfortable with it, and they dropped out. And then also just people from different social backgrounds. Siemens historically has gone for top students, top universities, you know, I could pick a hundred students who have great academic records, but when I bring them into the organisation, do they know how to influence people? Do they know how to collaborate? Are they able to read a situation? Have they struggled anywhere in their lives? I've noticed people with struggles in their lives tend to be good problem solvers mm-hmm. and they look at things in a different way and they, they have an ability to 
meet someone uh, and find compromises, for example. So, um, yeah, we're, we're really trying to change that approach and that whole discussion around getting rid of all that bias out of the processes is really, really important to me. I think in, in the moment during this pandemic, where people are looking to leaders, we're sitting at the moment in great uncertainty. Humility, that understanding of people, is more important than it has ever been, yeah, in terms of our business leaders and business community. And I, I believe if you have those skills, you know, the, the days of the old traditional leaders of stand in command, I have all the answers, and, and looking to one person to solve the world's problems, I think those days are gone. What people yeah. are looking for is a leader that it's not about decision-making anymore as much as that's incredibly important. It's actually about understanding humility. That's exactly. so important. I read somewhere that trying to do great things is difficult. Trying to do them alone is more often than not impossible. And that's why all great leaders have mentors and also mentor others. And, uh, you know, that, that made me think that no matter how competitive you may feel, especially, you know, early on in your career, success in reality is a team sport. And then, you know, it got me really interested. And I realized that Steve Jobs had Bill Campbell as a mentor. Mark Zuckerberg had Steve Jobs. Bill Gates had Warren Buffett. And turns out you're never too successful to need a mentor, you know. So for our listeners out there, what exactly can you expect to get out of it? I mean, why should you mentor someone else, no matter how busy you are? I think you've got to accept that you are also vulnerable. Yeah. And sometimes showing your own vulnerability is is a sign of strength, yeah? I've got one or two trusted mentors who I, of, of course, go to when I might not be sure about the next step. And that is so important that you constantly recheck yourself, um, that you're you're making the impact, especially as a leader. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Angela. Vincent, I'm so happy you're here. I'm sure you've just been probably nodding as we've been having this conversation. Firstly, I'm delighted to be here as well, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to hear Angela's story. So tell us a little bit about your journey, if you will. So my journey, I come from a low socioeconomic background, very working class family. My parents are both first generation uh, migrants, and none of us had ever gone to university. So you can imagine it was um, it was tough grow, growing up. And I think I realised quite uh, early on that the one thing I was, I was good at was uh, education and being good in school. I can't explain how incongruent that world was to the one that I was in before, the types of people that I was mixing with, um, the freedom to be in that, in that new environment. And for me, it was an incredible amount and when I got to my final year, I, I didn't handle it. I didn't do as well um, in my degree as I, as I wanted to do. And for me, I always look back on that as the major, that was the major turning point in, in my life. I knew that I had to try to come back from that. And I actually managed to speak to one of my friend's dads. And he's a really successful man. And what he said to me, this was one of my mentors, and it made such a massive difference, I'll never forget it, was that you have the opportunity now to show something on your CV in the future uh, that even the most talented people find difficult to do. And that's the ability to come back from, from a failure. 
So I started thinking to myself, how can I ensure that I never forget how I feel at this moment? And I took the really difficult decision to not attend my graduation event. And that was really painful for me, not being able to celebrate the culmination of my efforts with my friends. But I also knew that would be really painful for, for my mother, because as you can imagine, for any parent, going to their child's graduation is one of the things they look forward to from the moment they're born. And I'd taken that away from her. So I knew from that moment that I'd never forget the, the pain of failing because I didn't work hard enough. And I promised myself at that moment that I'd go back to the university, I'd do a master's and I'd get a first. And luckily I managed to, to do that. And it meant that the next year we could run it again and my mum could attend my graduation. And since then, I've always made sure that I put 100% into everything I'm doing, which is why I think I was lucky enough to be picked by my firm to go to, to One Young World, which was, I think, the best week of my life because it was incredible to meet so many people who are capable of doing anything, who decided to put their talents into doing things for, for the right reasons. And since, I've, since I left One Young World, I kind of doubled down and ensured that I only want to work in a company and I only want to work on things that have an impact bigger than myself. Well, you know, Vincent, it's just so inspiring because what I'm picking up in this conversation is these are two values that um, have defined uh, your vision and those are resilience and generosity. How would you help our listeners who don't know, understand what it is that Grant Thornton do? So Grant Thornton is one of the world's largest professional services companies. So we have three main service lines, audit, advisory work and tax. And we try to help businesses to become the best version of themselves, whether that is through looking back at what they've done in the past and seeing where things could have been done better, advising them on what they can do in the future and ensuring that they stay within the rules and regulations that govern all of us. I was so impressed that in your first year, you co-founded GT's first ethnicity network, which mm. aims to reduce the ethnicity pay gap and increase um, representation at top management levels. And you're also mm. on, their, on GT's inclusion advisory board which advises the strategic leadership team on making some kind of on making the kind of operational strategic decisions that they need to this kind of passion and commitment you know it doesn't just manifest overnight <laughs> you've talked a little bit about it but what has been the biggest contributor that's kind of led you to this kind of calling so i think my experiences have definitely played uh, a major impact when i finished um, university i started applying for jobs at this point, I had no experience whatsoever of the business world. I had no idea what I was applying to. I've never even been to an office before. I basically went on a job searching website and then I said, what do I want to be? And I was looking through the roles and then I saw CEO. I thought that's what I want to be. And then I kind of just searched online, at, looked at the FTSE 100 CEOs and tried to find things that they had in common. And one thing they had in common was a quarter of them had accountancy degrees. So then I think I said, okay, accountancy, that's what I'm going to do. And I still remember going into the office for the first time. I was so excited to be in the city. I got to my interview three hours early. Luckily, I got the job. And over three to six months, I started to realize that there wasn't really many people that looked like me within my firm at my level. And then I realized that as you go up, the numbers dropped more. 
And then I thought there's a problem within my firm. Then I started to do more research and thought there's a problem within my industry. And then I started to do more research and then I settled on there's actually, there's just a problem within my country in terms of diversity at the top level and perhaps in every other country in, in the world. And I think starting to realize that really changed what it was that I wanted to do with my career. I needed to ensure that when I left my firm, that it was in a better place than, than when I got there. And I think everyone that cares about their company thinks, thinks the same thing. So those experiences definitely shaped me. But then mentors as well, I think have had an equal impact. So one of my mentors that he's a fantastic person is someone called Lord Michael Hastings. And he's actually a one young world counsellor as well. And he has lived a life of such incredible purpose and drive and ambition, but ambition to, to serve others. And he is an unending inspiration for me. And two other inspirations for me are my current CEO, um, David Dunkley, and my ex-CEO, Sasha Romanovic, two individuals who have done an incredible amount to move a company of over 5,000 people towards being inclusive every day. And they're at the absolute top of, of the company. And they could do whatever they want. They could almost focus on whatever they want. And they both chose to focus on, again, making their company a better place than, than when they left it. And if people with those values can get to the top of a company like, like Grant Thornton, then it's an indicator that those values are the right things to hold and more people value. And I'm sure in a few years from now, when we speak to somebody else on this show, um, they will be citing your name as an influence <laughs> in their life. So outside of work, you are the co-founder of the Open Private School, uh, a charity matching elite mentors with young adults from state school backgrounds and just providing them that help through workshops and an alumni network. Tell us, how can businesses in the UK be part of this? The Open Private School wants to provide state school, state school educated students with some of the intangible benefits that private educated students get to reduce that diversity gap at, at that level. We need as many mentors as we can get at the top level because those sort of mentors are the ones that can provide opportunities, but also a little bit of confidence to these students who, who don't believe that they can ever achieve what people like Angela have, have achieved. And the more mentors we have, the more people we can help. But if a company decided that they wanted to go their own way, one thing that I think that they can do is to try to connect your senior leadership team with people who are at entry levels within within your company. They're, they're the future of, of your company. And this is like free training for them. Why, why would you not want to connect your up and coming talent with people who have been there and done it and give them the confidence that they're going to be able to, to do it too? Companies that realize how important diversity is to making better decisions are going to be those companies that create sustainable competitive advantages and do perform better. So I have a question for the both of you. And, you know, before we get there, you are a young leader from a generation that's different from most, if not all existing business leaders. I mean, I know, Vincent, that you want to be a politician one day, and I think you will make a fine politician and leader. Um, <laughs> once again, I want to be able to say, well, I spoke to him when he wanted to be a politician. So um, my question to you is, how do you feel that tomorrow's leaders will be different from the current generation? 
I think that one of the key differences we're going to see between the current generation and tomorrow's generation is how how forward-looking our generation is. So the generation that we have at the moment, I think is the most conscientious generation that, that I'm, I'm aware of. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm part of it. But now I think companies are starting to wake up to the fact that diversity is becoming more and more important. People will decide to work in different companies that pay them less if they don't feel as if they're going to fit in at that company. Companies are really starting to take mental health seriously. People are really starting to take the gender pay gap seriously, gender disparities seriously. People are starting to think seriously about changing their practices so that people with disabilities have a fair shot at getting into the world's largest companies because they have equally as much to offer. So I think that is going to be the major difference between this generation and the next one is how conscientious they are and companies are going to begin to realise that they have to pay attention to that in order to attract the best talent. Thank you for that. Angela, based on your experience and your vision, what would you say are the biggest opportunities for tomorrow's leaders to lead responsible business and drive change? What would you say those are? I actually would agree with the last comments of Vincent in terms of how um, business responsibility is really at the forefront Mm -hmm. of every boardroom at the moment. So, you know, in the old days, I would be interviewing (laughs) interviewing the candidates. Now they are interviewing me. So they're they're asking me what I think about climate change and sustainability and my approach to diversity and social responsibility is, is, is so important. And you asked about the opportunity in the future because these you know, the the pipeline is so conscious of this. So we're starting to grow leaders that have a conscience, that have a desire to make an impact in society. So it's not just about shareholder value. I just think about things like we're coming out of this pandemic and the stimulus packages that are being announced around the globe in terms of getting economies back on their feet. And if you look at there's a huge green agenda right now. there's a huge move of investment towards responsible business. And it's in all its forms, circular economy, whatever. I think we're going to see a lot of policy change from governments regarding corporates and, and their place and their impact in turning some of these, let's call them challenges around. We talk about the future of work. There's going to be new skills required. We're going to have to upskill um, existing workforce. And, you know, you need somebody at the top that is able to paint a vision of the future. And it's a vision about joint purpose and and it's about your place in society in the future. So I, I think there's huge opportunities coming. And I think the type of leader will evolve over the next uh, 10 to 20 years as technology yeah. changes as well. Yeah. Well, the future does look very positive in that respect. And so before we end this great conversation, here's my last question for both of you. Nobody would disagree with the fact that the kind of year we've had this year is unlike any other. So what is the most surprising thing this year has taught you about yourself? Vincent, what would you say that is? I'd say it's taught me about myself is how important mental health is. So I think it's it's very easy for uh, an ambitious person to get caught up in working all sorts of hours and all sorts of projects and just thinking that that you can work work through it. 
And at the start of the pandemic, I think I actually saw this as an opportunity for me to start to do more things. I was like, I don't have to travel anymore. I can stay at home. I can't go out, which means I have more time to do more things. And I think what I'm really surprised at now is that I understand that I do need to take time out of working in order to perform better. And I do need to spend time with my friends, my family. I do need to spend time exercising, going for walks. And if I don't, if I don't concentrate and enjoy in those pockets, then my body will eventually just shut down. So I think what I've found really surprising about myself is that I focus now on ensuring that I take time to myself in order to perform better when I need to. It's great. Angela, what would you say it has been for you? I have to say over the last 12 months, I've just become much more appreciative of my my home life and how I work. And, and the reason for that is I've really had my eyes opened as I've been doing meetings and you see inside people's homes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was always a person in the past where you know, if somebody, you know, had to put in the hours, they had to put in the hours. And, you know, I was, I could be quite tough sometimes around, especially part-time workers and things like that. Deadlines are very important to me. And then suddenly I got an insight, you know, you're on a call and somebody's sitting in a small room with three kids and, you know, you're looking at their environment and then looking at your own, you're looking at what they have to deal with. And, I, I've had that happen to me numerous times over the last 12 months where I've came off the phone and said, wow, I've got a garden. Yeah, it's simple things like this. I've got a garden. I've got an office. I've got a home office. And how lucky am, am I? Yeah? And I, I can also relate to what Vincent said. You see those people that are under so much pressure and it, yeah. it has to impact um, how they're feeling and their well-being. I've also realised that I have to change um, my own leadership approach. So I always, I've been a very hands-on leader. I like to meet people. I, I love chatting. I'm, I'm just, you know, I, for me, I, I'm quite extrovert. So I like to you know, get together with people and bang some ideas around. And then suddenly you can't get that human contact. So I've had to adjust my style and that has been a bit of a, that's been quite difficult, I have to admit, over the last 12 months. Um, and I, I felt it's the first time I've, I've had to learn new skills in terms of how I approach people. You know, you, we've had quite a few people die of COVID in the, you know, in our, our, our sort of immediate friendship groups, but also people in the office that have been unwell and a few deaths as well. And you can't just go on a call now and say, I tell you what, have you got that report I was looking yeah. for? You're really well, mindful now that perhaps some people are unwell or they're experiencing something difficult. So that's really a change. I think it's all made us more uh, empathetic. It has opened us to experience the limits and, and to the degree to which we can all be more empathetic than we thought we could and to feel things more deeply than we thought we could. And uh, to me, that's just one of the most uh, you know constructive things that has come out of this at a personal uh, level. And I, I see that it has um, had a similar effect on the both of you as well. I could talk to you forever and we could just keep going on. But this is a good place for now for us to draw this conversation to an end. And I just want to say thank you uh, to the both of you for joining us today. That was such a thoughtful and insightful conversation. 
You've been listening to The Lens. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World and McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. So thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. I'm Arjot Singh. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.